Welcome to episode 74 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you, in part, by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Peter Fox Penner, whose new book, Power After Carbon, Building a Clean, Resilient Grid, hit the shelves May of 2020. I've got a signed copy. Peter wears a myriad of hats, which we'll attempt to cover in the podcast, but his previous book, the widely acclaimed Smart Power, came out in early 2010, just after I launched the Smart Grid program at San Diego Gas and Electric. It was one of my most important resources for the company's Smart Grid journey. Peter's new book, Power After Carbon is a guide for people involved with or even just relying on energy, basically everyone. Peter helps make sense of the complexity the U.S. electric grid faces, the urgency of sustainable energy development combined with the unprecedented disruption brought on by new technologies, new competitors, and constantly changing policy. And speaking of unprecedented disruption, COVID infections are still on the rise many places in the world. So please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank people that are taking personal risks to help keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm here with Peter Fox Penner, Director of Boston University's Institute for Sustainable Energy and also professor in BU's Questrom School of Business. He's also the Chief Strategy Officer for Energy Impact Partners and academic advisor to the Battle Group. He's the author of the widely acclaimed Smart Power, which I have and have had for many, many years. And in 2020, he released another book, Power After Carbon, Building a Clean, Resilient Grid. Peter, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you very much, Lee. Pleasure to be here. Can you talk about your motivating moment for engaging in climate change mitigation? Well, I've had a couple of moments, but it really began when I came to work for the Clinton administration, the Clinton-Gore administration, I should say, in 1993. And I was a clean energy guy from really the beginning. And I was privileged to go into the part of the Department of Energy called Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And I believed in those things, and I was really thrilled to get that job. But Climate change was not really front and center in 1993 in my consciousness, like so many people. But it can truly be said it really was in Al Gore's consciousness, and he pulled the Clinton-Gore administration towards that realization. And the very first day I showed up in Washington at DOE, my office at EER said, you better get ready because the president's releasing the first climate change action plan the United States has ever released 
tomorrow. And our part of DOE has the vast majority of the responsibility for carrying this plan out. And 24 hours after I first set foot in the Forestall building, I was sitting there in front of Clinton and Gore at the White House, and they released this plan. And the rest, as they say, is history. That is incredibly exciting. Why is climate change mitigation personal to you? Well, I think it's just part of what I think of as our stewardship responsibility as humans. If we happen to be what, at least by our own measures, are the most intelligent top of the food chain on planet Earth, it's just part of our responsibility to manage our impact on the Earth and our impact on each other as responsibly as we can. So whether you want to call that religious or spiritual or ethical, that's kind of a little bit up to your faith tradition. But whatever your faith tradition, I think that responsibility is there. When you meet people that don't believe there is climate change, they don't believe the science, they don't believe the data, how do you convince them otherwise? To be honest, Lee, I don't think I'm especially good at that particular task. And part of it is because it just boggles my mind that people can deny climate science and deny climate change. And I get so crazy that I'm not a particularly effective communicator on changing their minds. But there is a growing group of practitioners who literally steady climate communications as a field of study and a field of practice. And they have become much, much better at understanding climate deniers and communicating with them. I think it was maybe Upton Sinclair in the 20s who said, it's pretty difficult to convince a man of something when his paycheck depends on him not being convinced of that. I'm paraphrasing. And there are a lot of powerful reasons why people hang on to denial. There's a vast psychology literature on that. And many of them apply to climate change. And some of them, I think we can honestly be very sympathetic to. We really do have to take care of people whose jobs are attached to the fossil fuel industry and older uses for fossil fuel energy, burning coal in steel mills and natural gas in our homes. We have generally not done a very good job at job transitions, at managing workforce transitions that are caused by environmental rules. It's now very well established that you gain many, many more jobs than you lose. You know, we have 2.3 million people working in energy efficiency in the United States. I think there's under 60,000 active coal miners and 300,000 people working in the solar industry prior to the pandemic. So you have tremendous opportunities. Joe Biden's right when he said, when I hear the words climate change, I hear the word jobs. That's true, but if your job is involved in fossil energy, we owe it to you to help you to transition to another job that doesn't hurt the planet. That's probably something we need to get very good at because 
with a lot of the technology that we're going to be seeing over the next decade or two, I think a lot of jobs that today a lot of people do, not just the coal industry, are going to change or go away. I'm thinking about truck drivers, for example. Well, technological change and the elimination of labor is an occurrence, a trend that does go far beyond climate change. Automation is eliminating jobs, robotization, artificial intelligence, and so on and so forth. And yes, the future of work and improving labor force training and transition policies, yeah, that is a national priority unto itself and beyond climate change. I would agree with that. Can you talk about what you do now to help mitigate climate change? As your introduction suggested, I wear several hats at Boston University's Institute for Sustainable Energy. We do research and engagement with policymakers to help accelerate the clean energy transition. A good example of that is our plan to eliminate carbon emissions in the city of Boston by 2050 called Carbon Free Boston. And we spent two years creating real recommendations for the city, modeling ways to eliminate carbon emissions in 2050 in the buildings, transportation, waste, and energy sectors. And we published a series of reports, including, by the way, a very long and early pioneering report on environmental justice and how to build that into a city's climate transition plan. Talked a lot about these labor transition issues and also about racial justice and environmental equity. But that's the kind of policy research that we do at Boston University. I also, as you mentioned, work as chief strategy officer for Energy Impact Partners. We've invested in about 40 companies that are foundational to the clean energy transition. Many of them are quantifiably saving carbon today, quite a bit of carbon. And so through that investment activity, we try to also accelerate the clean energy transition. For a few years, I was on the board of GridX, and I believe Energy Impact Partners recently invested in them. That's correct. GridX has wonderful software that allows for consolidated building of community solar or even rooftop solar, which allows for greater low and middle income access, among other things. We're very pleased to have invested in them. And Thank you for your service on their board and getting them ready for us. <laughs> You're welcome. I wish I could have done more, but I'm glad that they are now flying pretty high. For much of my life, I've been a researcher and policy wonk or government official or consultant. And I continue to do some consulting through Brattle Group, which is helping companies, mostly clean energy companies and regulatory and government agencies, solve clean energy and climate transition problems. So that's a traditional consulting role. But one of the reasons why I moved to help form Energy Impact Partners and really am very proud of what we're doing is that I think solving climate change is a combination of research and policy formulation where we need to figure out how we're going to grapple with tough questions like how do we transition the energy labor force and what market designs will get us to the electricity grid we need. All the questions we tried to answer in Carbon Free Boston and many, many other research questions. But beyond that, the clean energy transition is fundamentally a gigantic capital turnover 
challenge. We have to take the energy systems of the world, which are one of the most capital intensive systems of any industry. And we have to accelerate that turnover from a capital stock that was really built around using fossil fuels primarily to generate electricity to a capital stock that doesn't use any fossil fuels or sequesters the carbon if it does use them. And so in economic terms, that's capital stock turnover. In market and financial terms, that's a gigantic financing job. And the more I saw that, the more important I thought it was to find new ways to put capital to work. And one of the path-breaking things about Energy Impact Partners is that it's a coalition of 19 of the world's largest electric utilities plus some other really, really large companies like Microsoft with large access to capital, pooling their money to invest in new technologies to get them further. It's literally deploying capital to make the clean energy transition. And because it's a capital turnover problem, it really seems important to me to find more and more ways to deploy capital as quickly as possible to reinvest and reinvent the industry. How has the pandemic changed what you do? Well, I seem to be looking at you on this computer screen using <laughs> Zoom, not sitting in your studio. Like everybody else, all three of the organizations I work with are all working remotely. So you can start with that. Travel is close to zero, much more difficult and constrained. Those are the two day-to-day -day realities that are just massive changes for all of us who have the kind of jobs you and I have. The pandemic, though, has also really created a resonance between the public health crisis, that is COVID-19, and the public health and environmental crisis, that is climate change. That resonance has elevated the importance of climate policy in, I think, many, many people's views. And I must confess, Lee, I did not expect that. For example, the Institute for Sustainable Energy, we thought everyone would lose interest in our work when the pandemic first came on. But pretty quickly, we started to see and see ourselves and even feel the similarities between a threat to civilization, namely the COVID virus, that was sort of invisible, yet incredibly powerful, and had the ability to just change our way of life. And climate change, which is also invisible and intangible, but an equally big or even bigger threat to our way of life. And by the way, the kind of threat that accelerates diseases and shifts in pestilence and all sorts of rapid changes to our ecosystem, severe weather events, lots of things that are frightening, not visible, not controllable. And that's a lot like what the pandemic has done to us. And people are saying, we don't want that to happen again to our civil society. And just as we need much better public health systems, to prepare ourselves for future viruses, because we know there will be one. 
we need to prepare ourselves for climate change by both avoiding it. That's like find the vaccine now, not after you have it. But the reality is prepare for the fact that we won't find the vaccine perfectly. We will have some of the effects of climate change. We're already having them. And we need to bolster our systems that cope with climate change. Those are like the public health systems that help us cope with COVID. So on both the prevention and the aftercare dimensions, we see similarities, people feel similarities. And that's, I think, added an impetus to moving climate policy forward. I agree with you. I think there are many similarities. One thing that concerns me is that with the pandemic, there were many people, many scientists that understood something like this was probably going to happen at some point and that with time it was becoming more likely and yet there wasn't a huge amount of investment in preventing it and instead we are having to react to it and it's taking a tremendous amount of money and we still haven't gotten a handle on it. With climate change, it's very likely that by the time it's in our face like the pandemic is, it will be too late. So we really need to figure out how to marshal our resources for something that isn't upon us, but something that is still a little bit in front of us. In terms of human behavior, just said simply, that is the challenge of climate change and any long-term threat. For better or for worse, I think as a species, we have been programmed over millions of years to be as good as we can at fending off near-term threats. And we're much more experienced, maybe too experienced at doing that. And we have literally never had the ability to teach ourselves or program ourselves, use whatever verb you want, to change now in anticipation of threats that have very long timeframes. We're just not programmed for it, Lee. And so, in a sense, we're having to try to reprogram our whole modes of thinking and reprogram our modes of economic exchange and governance to react to longer term, more uncertain, but very, very deep threats. These are big change in human behavior and how we organize ourselves economically, technologically, politically. We have the biggest impact with coupled with the biggest challenge. I'm just saying I'm scared. Well, it's understandable that you're scared. And by the way, being scared is how we as humans force ourselves to react to a threat. So there is something good in there. The key is to react in the most intelligent, achievable, sustainable way over a time frame that is beyond our usual sphere of operations, and particularly to adapt our political and our economic and our financial systems to change our energy infrastructure, all of our use sectors, the way we travel, the way we eat, change those things so that we can eliminate or sequester carbon emissions. 
now as daunting a challenge as that is, I'm making it sound like it's just mind-bogglingly complex. You are. What becomes apparent to me, and is really a source of hope, is that the pace at which we are figuring out creative solutions is much faster than I expected, to be honest. I started watching this very carefully 10 years ago in the energy sector. The energy sector's much further than I thought it would be. Electric utility emissions are down 29% since 2005 levels. Just today, Alliant, one of EIP's investor companies, announced its plan to go carbon neutral by 2050. I think that makes it right around the 25th utility in the United States to do that. And that's just in the electricity sector, which I think is farthest ahead. We've made gigantic strides in electrifying transportation. I drove over to where I am in a all-electric Volkswagen Golf. It's not an advertisement for it. Buy any electric car or plug-in hybrid that you can find. And there are now dozens of excellent models out there. So the one thing humans are good at is creating tools, inventing and creating tools, all kinds of tools business models, physical hardware, software, new community organizations and NGOs and funds. We are a creative species. That's going to be our saving grace if we save ourselves and the rest of the planet. So biggest impact, biggest challenge, that's what we're good at. We're creative, I will say that. Can you talk a little bit about your journey how did you get where you are today? Well, the short form is that I was an audio engineering and kind of left-wing politico in college and by accident took a course on energy in the engineering school and realized how important it was going to be even before climate change was a major topic of conversation. It was apparent as my First, professors told me that the single biggest indicator of environmental harm in any process anywhere in the world is how much energy it uses. That's the barometer for environmental well-being. I thought that was really, really a profound insight. So I made energy my field of study, went through a succession of work in government agencies at the state of Illinois university research, some services I mentioned in the Clinton administration, the Department of Energy and Science and Technology Policy. And for 18 years, did energy consulting at the Brattle Group, where I was really, really happy to be working on many, many difficult challenges and problems relating to decarbonization. One of the last projects I had was working on the REV docket in New York, reinventing the energy vision with Richard Kaufman and Audrey Zibelman and their team. And that was such a incredible and interesting and important assignment. I feel very lucky to have worked on it. After that, I came to this sort of quasi epiphany about the importance of finance and accelerating capital deployment. And was very lucky to help create energy impact partners remain working with Brattle, and then just give something back by working at the Institute of Sustainable Energy and BU. Can you talk about some of the setbacks that you've had in your career? <laughs> Too many to cover, most of them self-inflicted. 
But one setback that really just left me just scarred and still scarred was Gore's loss to Bush. As an environmentalist and a clean energy worker, obviously that was really a gigantic fork in the road and slowed down climate progress immensely. As somebody who worked on Gore's campaign, that was very, very hard to watch. You know, anybody who cared about the environment hurt when they watched that happen. The same thing could be said of Trump's victory, where we had a candidate who's president who's a climate denier and calls it a hoax. It's just beyond conception and has rolled back dozens and dozens of environmental rules, including climate change rules, pulled us out of Paris, pledged to pull us out of Paris, accord. Those two setbacks are very, very large, large in my consciousness. There's lots of smaller setbacks where I lost a case I was pleading for a new regulation or a new policy. There are many, many of them. I have no complaints. How about successes? Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? I'm very proud of all three of the activities that I'm working on now. I'm very proud of what we're doing at Energy Impact Partners. Proud of the work that Brattle Group does. I think it's really first tier. And I'm really proud of what we've built at Sustainable Energy. That we created five years ago from nothing, and it's really turned out much better than I expected. We have a great team there, a fantastic group of senior fellows from all over the world. And we've been able to do things like Carbon Free Boston. I'm very proud of having started that. I'm also proud of my books. You were kind enough to mention them, Smart Power, which had much more impact than I expected. And I'm proud of Power After Carbon, the new book, but I also truly believe it's a much smaller contribution proportionally than Smart Power was because there are many, many great people working on decarbonizing the power grid right now. What I wrote is kind of almost like a summary textbook for the quasi layperson. And hopefully that's of value. It has a couple of new ideas in it, but the sector is moving with or without that book very well, very strongly. And I'm glad of that. The sector is definitely stronger now than when you wrote Smart Power. That was a while ago. But based on how you just described power after carbon, I'm very excited about its contribution. I think talking about the future of energy in a way that people can understand is very valuable. Can you get into some of the details? Surely. Thanks. It's called Power After Carbon. It's from Harvard University Press. And it's a pretty comprehensive look at what it will take to decarbonize, fully decarbonize the electric power systems in a developed world by 2050 or really much sooner than that, 2040, perhaps 2035. The book is in three sections. The first section is all about the need for electricity as a climate solution. As you know, Lee, and many of us now understand, much of the solution to decarbonizing the world's energy systems is to electrify as much of transportation, as much as we can of building heat, many industrial processes that now use fossil fuels. And when we do that electrification, we're going to need more electricity coming from an, of course, entirely clean power grid. The first section of the book is to ask, 
how big a power grid are we going to need if we are going to succeed at the electrification part of the climate solution? And to make a long story short, I conclude that we're going to need a grid of 140 to 200% of our current grid, I think, by mid-century. And that's, a, that's an achievable increase in size. It sounds like a lot, but I think it's quite doable. But it's not nothing, and we need to plan for that as we pursue electrification very quickly. The second part of the book is about what I call the big grid, the large-scale power grid that generates 95% of our power today and will continue to generate the lion's share of our energy. What are we going to use to make large, large amounts of carbon-free power, much more than we're getting now? And also, what are we going to use to store it? Because we're going to use wind and solar to generate much of our carbon-free power for certain over the next 20 years. But those are both variable sources of energy, so we need massive, massive amounts of storage. And here, Lee, I'm not talking about lithium-ion batteries in our basement. I'm talking about giant storage facilities as large as power plants or hydroelectric dams, which are by far the largest energy storage facilities in the world today. So the middle part of the book is about those technologies, but also how to get that stuff financed and built and planned. There's a lot of discussion of transmission planning and how you make sure that you have a network, not just a bunch of facilities plopped down, and how to make sure they're financeable quickly and feasibly. Finally, the third section of the book talks about what I call the small grid or the downstream section. That's the retail electric utility sector that most of us interact with, our local utilities. There's 3,000 of them, believe it or not, in the United States. And they have to change how they distribute electricity, how they interact with customers who have solar panels, how they build electric chargers and make sure that they work. Those are very, very unique electric appliances, if you will, with very, very high peak loads. So the whole business model and regulation of utilities has to evolve towards performance-based regulation and lots of new technologies and modes of managing that grid. And that's the third section of the book. Hopefully it's a good overview. It's accessible to educated readers of all types. I hope to God you don't need a PhD in anything to read it because we all need to be able to understand this and participate in it. And that was really the goal of the book because there's many, many people who are very deep in the trenches, pushing the envelope in every one of these areas. My goal with the book was to help all of us understand the challenges more broadly and contribute. What you just talked about are many of the things I believe very much. I consider long-term energy storage to be the number one need that we have to add to the system to really make a go of this. And that's because renewable energy is very cheap and getting cheaper, but we need it when we need it. It isn't always there. So we must have that storage. So I agree 100% with you there. I have a friend, his name is Tim Sassine. He works for Ballard Power. He did some math and came up with the need for twice as much energy at the endpoints than we have today. So he agrees with you. But when we talk, we think it's going to be more distributed. So a lot of that energy might be 
not delivered by the power system we have today, but generated at the endpoint somehow. One example might be building a solar plant or a wind plant specifically to make hydrogen. And so you wouldn't need a lot of the interconnection fees. You could put it in a different place, maybe along a freeway where land is inexpensive, and you can end up generating inexpensive hydrogen that way, for example. So I guess I agree with you, and I have specifics in my head that I'm not sure you agree with. Well, I agree with much of what you said, but I also disagree with a fair amount of it. First of all, I certainly agree that distributed energy is a key part of our clean energy future. It's here to stay. It's not going away. It's only going to get larger. And I think it won't be long before we routinely build new structures with solar built in. But I think that will give us nowhere near the 140 to 200% of current electricity use that we need. There's lots of calculations on this, and I do quite a few of them in my book. The city of Boston can get about 16% of its 2050 electricity use from using every available rooftop we project in carbon-free Boston. Some other cities, you can get 30 or 40% of current energy use, not future energy use, from rooftops. So distributed generation, at least solar, and don't forget energy efficiency, Lee, which is the first fuel and a very, very critical one, are both kind of the first two legs of the stool, but the stool will not stand on those two legs. And a leg as large as energy efficiency, but much larger than distributed energy, will be power we get from large utility scale, perhaps some community scale, renewable facilities, many of them wind and solar, very possibly carbon capture with sequestration and advanced nuclear. So for those you need utility scale financing, you need to deploy at scale, you need grid planning and grid construction and to manage those with reformed power markets. So distributed generation, while it's critical and a priority, I don't think it by itself is enough. I also agree with you that hydrogen is going to be a very key part of the solution. I don't think we're going to generate it so much along highways because, for one thing, land isn't all that cheap along highways in most places that, you, that you'd want hydrogen. But I think we will generate some hydrogen. But remember, hydrogen requires infrastructure to move around too. So we need to be planning for clean fuel infrastructure alongside clean electric infrastructure. One of the main and perhaps most controversial points in my book is that I call for regional energy planning, not regional electricity or grid planning, regional energy planning that integrates planning transmission along with planning for much stronger energy efficiency, maximizing distributed generation, but and finally wraps in clean fuels because you need to balance out clean fuel production from electricity, clean electricity production from fuels, and everything in between if you want a regional clean energy future. I am with you. I really am. I'm going to look at your math, though, but I am with you. I do think we need all the arrows in the quiver. I know that's overused, but we really, really do in this case. Can you talk about your vision of the future? Where do you think the country, the world is 20, 30, 40 years from now? Well, I think there is a possibility of a very 
sad and dangerous path if we don't get our arms wrapped around climate change and also the general civil strife that we're witnessing all over the world. The dissolution of civil society, the growth of populism, as it is usually termed, right-wing populism. And there are times when civilization has stalled out, civil society has fallen apart, moved backwards. There's something in human history we call the Dark Ages for that reason, which was followed by the Renaissance, of course. And we could be in for another Dark Ages, particularly if our developed societies fall victim to ever stronger populism, mercantilism, isolationism, climate denialism, and other similar developments. Sadly, in human history, there are times when you might say things fall apart. We could be in for one of those periods. The rational side of me thinks that. But I'm hopeful, and I think there are signs that the alternative path is that right-wing populism subsides what I guess I call market democracies, the civil societies that have been, I think, by far the most successful human enterprises we have, that they, you might say, right themselves, which includes decarbonizing the world's energy systems and thereby stopping the worst of climate change, but it also includes reforming their markets and their economies, coping with the onset of artificial intelligence, you know, computers smarter than we are, the challenges to labor, gene editing and the bioethical questions that we have ahead of us. Some of these gigantic challenges, but if we can figure our way through them, it will be an amazing future and clearly at a level of human development and human civilization that's, that's far above where we are now. Wow. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Peter was an environmentalist even before he got hired by the administration of Clinton and Al Gore. He was there when it began. It was the first ever U.S. climate action plan. When super hard part about successful change missions is making sure you deal with job transitions, the impact of climate change for Peter is not lost in. That's why he started Carbon Free Boston. We've got to find a way to successfully maneuver with a huge energy capital stack turnover. You don't have to be a gambler, but we have to place our bets. Society needs to find a way to get ahead of long-term threats. The biggest motivator to make sure we're prepared is to leverage scientific data to make people scared. Before Impact Partners, his prior battle, he was chairman of a consulting firm and still an advisor to Brattle. The setback that scarred him oh so bad was that Florida had a hanging chad. Listen, you don't need a PhD. Just take a look at Peter's Power After Carbon new book. That was fantastic. Thank you, Lee, because I have gotten a lot of professional honors and rewards and recognition in life, and I have yet to get a wrap. Thank you. Well, you have a wrap now. Yeah. 
Since reading Peter's first book, Smart Power, I've been a huge fan. But being part of the Clinton-Gore team that released the nation's first climate action plan? How exciting is that? If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Peter's journey from government to consulting to helping to launch new energy companies to founding and directing Boston University's Institute for Sustainable Energy and also teaching courses on sustainable energy at BU all serve to empower others to join the battle and help mitigate climate change.